Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. In the fall of 2016, a single picture of a drowned Syrian boy fleeing the war-torn region took over the headlines of the news. It even impacted, if you remember, the decisions of some of the world leaders. And what the world saw was a three-year-old boy washed up on a Turkish beach as his family fled the civil war. The picture showed him lying there face down, almost as if he were sleeping with the waves crashing on his face. He wore blue pants, a red t-shirt, and gray sneakers with Velcro tabs. A second image wasn't as graphic, but it shows a police officer lifting the boy's lifeless body from the sand. And the photos, they just went around the world in a matter of seconds. But these are actually not the only photos. This is not the first time that photos have changed the course of history. Because any photo, any picture of a child makes us think of our own. Or it makes us think of the child that we once were. Perhaps you remember some of these pictures I'm going to describe. I'm not going to be showing them here this morning, but perhaps you remember them. In 1995, at the site of the Oklahoma City bombing, the press ran a photo of a firefighter that was carrying the body of a toddler in pink socks, critically wounded from the explosion. Or if you're older, maybe you remember the picture from 1972 of a screaming girl running away from a bomb blast in Vietnam. Then in 1992, there was that horrible picture, a photo from Sudan of a starving girl sitting there on the ground, starving to death, and there was a vulture in the background. The vulture was just sitting there waiting, waiting for this little girl to die. 2008 brought us the picture after the hurricane in Haiti of a boy pushing the stroller. He had nothing left to his name, not even clothes, but the picture was of him just with this stroller. You see, every one of these pictures that the press runs like this, it causes us to wonder about their stories, their future. And then what do we do in our minds? We contrast them with our own. But there is one child that came into this world that changed the course of history like no other person ever could. I am thankful that he came at a time and place when no camera lens could actually find him because instead of a photo, God had a much better plan. God chose to speak to man using his words to tell his story of his son, Jesus the Christ, to let his people know that they've been called to a purpose, to tell others about him, to let others know of God's amazing grace. You see, each of us as believers in Christ has a testimony of the work of Christ in our lives. And sharing that testimony, it may seem so simple, but sharing that testimony with others, sharing that picture, if you will, with others of what Christ has done for you, it's a part of God's bigger purpose for your life. It is a part of God's calling. 
This is where we find the Apostle Paul this morning in Galatians chapter 1. Join me in your Bibles there if you would, and we start our time with verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 If you're studying the text, it should actually remind you of verse 1 when we went through that. Because Paul had a message. He wanted it made known that Paul didn't get any of his ideas just from man. I make it known, he says. I certify to you, in other words, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was not according to man. It didn't even need to be taught to Paul because it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul received the gospel on the road to Damascus when the Lord Jesus appeared to him. And this helps us know that the gospel is true. You see, men on their own, men trying to come up with some crazy path of redemption, what would they do? They would pack any message of redemption with works, with good works, with lies, with the things that we could do to earn our salvation. But you see, Paul, he got it directly from the pure source of grace. He got it right from God. The gospel is definitely not an invention by Paul. No human mind left on their own could ever dream up of a plan of salvation that is completely dependent on the grace of God and on the death of his son. Grace cannot be a human invention because it goes against our very pride. It goes against our love for control and power. There can only be one conclusion. If the gospel of Christ didn't come from Paul, if the gospel didn't come from man, it had to have come from God himself. Now, if these churches in Galatia were going to listen to Paul, they needed to recognize that Paul was called by God to be an apostle on equal footing with the other 12. And they needed to learn the same message that the church of Jesus Christ needs to learn today. When you stand against the gospel of Christ, you are actually standing against God himself. And Paul adds to this. Starting in verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now, Paul is starting to share his testimony Every believer in Jesus Christ should have a testimony of what the grace of God has done in their life. Here is Paul's. He's saying that God's grace changed me. God's grace transforms me. Paul isn't telling people, hey, just look at me. He's saying, look at what God did in me. There's a big difference, isn't there? Paul is living proof that God changes lives. One of the most important verses, you want to change your life? One of the most important verses you can memorize in your Christian life is 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I would add to it another verse. I would add the words that Paul is going to teach us in Galatians 2.20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
You see, Paul knew that his testimony of the transformation in his life, it was actually powerful evidence, not only of the reality and relevance of God, but also of the credibility of his own ministry. See, he's telling them, look at who I was. Take a look at who I was. He was the rabbi. He was Saul of Tarsus, set out to destroy the infant church of Jesus Christ. He was a man to be feared. You know, as I study the scriptures, I actually think this is one of the reasons that Paul was always trying to raise money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Because for many of them, he had been the one who had destroyed their lives. They had become widows and orphans because of his reign of terror. Saul, he saw the Christians as heretics that needed to be killed, needed to be destroyed. He was a hard man with no compassion. And for the Galatians, even for the Galatians, before he became a Christian, Saul was a man that would have not wanted to reach out to these dirty, rotten Gentiles. So in verse 14, he's actually telling us that as a rabbi, Saul had been one of the strictest and most legalistic Pharisees of the day. Paul said in Acts 22, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous towards God as you are to this day. Paul studied back then under one of the most respected teachers of his day. Now, when Paul says here in verse 14 in Galatians that he advanced in the ranks of Judaism, it means literally in the text that he was cutting ahead of other people. He was like a driver on the Glen Highway, cutting off people, thinking they're going to get there first in a hurry to reach his destination. See, Paul actually wanted to lead the Pharisees. He craved the recognition of man, and he did advance. He went faster and faster than the others in his own nation. He was at the head of the class, if you will. But Paul, he not only kept the law, but he kept their traditions and all the teachings that had been added on that often contradicted the word of God. You see, there is a warning here in the scriptures this morning about the danger that comes from the pride when men think they are just a little bit better for keeping traditions that aren't even taught in God's word. It all started, in my opinion, around 443 B.C. when the scribes began to expound and interpret the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And you see, they started adding commentaries to them and they started adding stories. And this became known as the Midrash. And once it started, it began to just grow and grow and grow. And it contained the teaching of the Jewish rabbis from the days of the early Babylonian captivity, all the way up to shortly before the birth of Jesus Christ. But then there was a radical change. Something happened. You see, someone came up with the great idea that God had actually given Moses two sets of laws. The written law, written on the tablets of stone, and also the oral law. See, the written law was said to be recorded in Scripture, in the commandments, and the oral law was in the hands of the rabbis. And then when the Greeks came along under Alexander the Great, the rabbis began to add other things to it. They began to add Greek logic and reasoning and human wisdom, human thinking to their teaching. And then around 200 BC, their teachings became known as the Mishnah. It was a diluted diluted or polluted, however you want to say it, version of God's word, infused with liberal ideas of human opinion. And I would say that this is still one of the greatest problems in the church today. People 
diluting the word of God, mixing in all the opinions of men. You see, this teaching, it just kept growing and growing and growing for centuries, but it was considered to be so sacred. It was considered to be so important that it could never actually even be written down. And so they actually had to memorize all this stuff, including the footnotes and including all the citations. Now, that's a pain. Then it had to be passed on to others by the spoken word. You see, it was the oral law, and it took a great effort to memorize all this. But the reasoning and the logic of the Greeks, it it nullified the teachings of Scripture. And this was the school of thought that Saul of Tarsus belonged to. As a Pharisee, he had committed to keeping all of the 613 commandments of the written laws, but also the endless rulings and traditions of all the rabbis. He would have sat at the feet of his teacher, just sitting there reciting and memorizing over and over and over and over like a robot, these rules. He was a trained rabbi carving out a name for himself. Paul would write in Philippians 3, he says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning the zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. You see, Paul is saying to these legalistic teachers that were influencing the churches in Galatia, he's saying, you want rules? You want religion? You want traditions? I went down that road. I followed that road as far as it would take me. I was even more legalistic than you, but it didn't do me an ounce of good. I stood in opposition to God himself. Paul may have been the most religious man to have ever lived. If you could get to heaven by good works, Paul was the man. Paul would have been that man. See, Paul understood more than most of us the legalistic bent of men. And Paul also understood something on opposite ground. He understood God's amazing grace. Nothing but the grace of Christ could transform him. One of my favorite old stories that I like to tell, and I can't honestly remember if I've taught it in this church or not, but one of my favorite old stories I like to tell is of a young woman who felt the tug of God drawing her to salvation. She received Christ as her Savior. And this young woman, she had a a tough past, a rough past, including drugs, including prostitution. But with time, the change in her life was absolutely obvious. She became a faithful member of the church. She even got involved in ministry, teaching young children. But it wasn't too long before this faithful young woman had caught the eye and the heart of the pastor's son. Now the relationship grew and they began to make wedding plans. And this is actually when the problem began. Half of the church did not think that a woman like this with such a past, with prostitution in her background, with drugs in her background, was suitable to be married to a pastor's son. So the church began to do what churches do. They began to fight, they began to argue, they began to get at one another. So they decided to have a meeting. And they argued some more. And this meeting was getting completely out of control. And the young woman became upset because they were bringing up all these things about her past. And as she began to cry, the pastor's son stood to speak. He could not bear the pain that this was causing his bride to be. And so he said, my fiance's past is not what is on trial here. What you are questioning is the ability of the blood of Jesus to wash away sin. See, today, he said, you've been putting the blood of Jesus Christ on trial, so does it wash away sin or not? 
And that is when that little church realized that they'd been guilty, guilty of slandering the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians like to do this, don't we? We're good at it. We're so good at it, it hurts. We bring up the past and we use it as a weapon against our brothers in Christ. Shame on us. And see, Paul's saying here, my past isn't on trial, but his past, it absolutely demonstrated the mercy and grace of God. Paul himself later wrote to Timothy, he said, I was formerly, notice, formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Not a single person in this room deserves God's salvation. And that's the point. It's all about grace. And so Paul tells us, despite who he was on his own before Christ, Paul was born for a purpose. Verse 15, he says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Do you see the contrast? If you're alive and have a heartbeat and are looking at your Bible, you should see a contrast here. And it is amazing. God stepped in. God intervened in Paul's life. Paul certainly did not deserve it. Notice these first words. But when it pleased Saul, when it pleased who? God. When it pleased God, Paul came to faith in Christ when it pleased God. When God the Son chose to reveal himself to Paul with the words that came out of heaven, Saul, Saul. At a time when Paul was perhaps the worst possible candidate for salvation, God broke in. And Paul tells us that God did three things for him. First, he set Paul apart at birth. Paul knew that God had set him apart. And that is the whole entire point that his life, even before Christ, was used by God as preparation for the ministry to prepare him to preach the gospel of grace. Second, Paul says that God called him by his grace. God called him to salvation. And then Paul received Christ as his savior. And third, he says here, God was pleased to reveal his son in Paul in order that he might what? Preach him among the Gentiles. Don't lose that phrase. We're going to come back to that. But that he was revealed so that he would preach the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. Important point. See, from that point on, when God stepped into his life, Jesus lived in Paul. Paul had been blind to the very deity of Christ. He thought that Jesus of Nazareth, he looked at it and said, this guy's a fraud. He's a counterfeit. He's a fraud. But God stepped in and revealed himself to Paul. And what did Paul go on to do? He became the apostle to the Gentiles. There's, there's no other explanation for the transformation of, of such a man. It was simply by God's grace. And now Paul stood as an apostle, ready to reveal the Son of God to the Gentiles. Separated from ministry, Paul was called to be an apostle. And from what we can actually tell, he established more Gentile churches than all the other apostles combined. Pick it up again with the rest of verse 16. He says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who are apostles before me, but I went up to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. 
Now, I am always amazed that I'm going to step on some toes, and I apologize ahead of time, but I, I think it's God's truth here. I am always amazed at how many people think that Paul spent three years in Arabia, and that this is where God taught Paul his doctrines, his theology. But just stop for a second and look at the text with me. It doesn't tell us how long he was in Arabia because sometime after he returns to Damascus. And then verse 18 tells us he went to Jerusalem. You see, Paul is trying to tell us that if he wasn't sure about what he was teaching, if he wasn't sure about his doctrine, if he wasn't sure about the gospel of Christ, the first thing he would have done is gone down to Jerusalem and then take a class from the apostles. But he didn't. He went to Arabia. So what happened in Arabia? Well, Walter, I think it's time to cue the Indiana Jones music. I think the text tells us. In the same sentence, Paul had just said that God revealed his son in him so that he might preach Christ among the Gentiles. Now, if you're a Greek student, it's actually a dependent clause, meaning the text suggests that the reason Paul went to Arabia was to preach Jesus Christ. And we know some historical evidence from what we know that it seems that Paul went to Petra, that he went and preached to the king of the Nabataeans, King Eratus, who lived in Petra. Cue the Indiana Jones music. The territory of the Nabataeans, they extended all the way up to Damascus. But Paul's preaching in Damascus was causing so many problems. So after three years of it, the king of the Nabataeans tried to have Paul killed. And Paul would actually later write in 2 Corinthians 11, he would say, in Damascus, the governor under Eretus the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Paul escaped Damascus by being lowered down in that basket from the window. But only then, only at that point did Paul head to Jerusalem to meet some of the apostles. Paul was telling his critics his message wasn't based on the words of others because God had shown his son, Jesus Christ, to Paul. And then after three years, when Paul finally made it down to Jerusalem, he was only with Peter for 15 days. And the only other leader of the church that Paul saw was James, the half-brother of the Lord. But even then, Paul wasn't in Jerusalem there learning theology he was preaching. And Acts 9 actually tells us this. It says, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. Paul had to leave Jerusalem because his life, his life was in danger. His message had not come from men, not from the 12 apostles, not from Jerusalem, but from the Father in heaven who had revealed his son to him. And Paul was so certain of this that he would boldly say in verse 20, he could boldly say back in Galatians verse 20 that he testified under oath before God, calling for God to be his witness that he was telling the truth. You see, Paul understood that when men undermined the messenger of grace, it's because so often they're not attacking the messenger, they're attacking the message of grace itself. And Paul's integrity was at stake. The gospel of Christ and the revelation of God's amazing grace was being challenged. So Paul put himself under oath. He was telling the truth. 
And it took Paul three years from his conversion to make it down to Jerusalem. And in the meantime, what did he do? Well, he preached Christ. He had received his doctrine from Christ. And the wording indicates to us that even when he did make his way down to Jerusalem, it was because he wanted to meet Peter. He wanted to have fellowship with Peter and James down in Jerusalem, not because he needed a class, not because he needed instruction from them. Paul had learned the gospel of grace directly from Christ. But what a time of fellowship. Picture this in your head, if you would. What a time of fellowship this must have been. Peter, the great apostle to the Jews, and Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. There they stood, looking each other in the eye, eye to eye. Peter was a simple Galilean fisherman. Paul, the rabbinic scholar and the favored son of the Sanhedrin. And outside of Jesus Christ, the two men would have had nothing in common. Now the men stood shoulder to shoulder as ambassadors for Christ with the same exact message of God's grace. Why? Because God had revealed it to both of them. Paul had received the message of grace from Christ, but now he stood preaching the same message as that of the apostles in Jerusalem. Watch how we round out the chapter starting in verse 21. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. When Paul was in Jerusalem, when he learned of this plot to kill him, Paul fled to Syria and Cilicia, Paul's home province where he was from. But even then, Acts 15 tells us he went on to evangelize. He went on to preach Christ for about a decade. He wasn't just sitting on his hands this entire time. He was preaching Christ. Paul only had 15 days in Jerusalem. So the churches of Judea, they didn't know him. The people on the streets of Judea, they wouldn't have recognized him. Years were starting to tick by. But when the Christians of Judea heard that this man who had once led the charge to destroy the church of Jesus Christ was now indwelt by Christ himself, what did they do? The text says they glorified God in me. But notice what it says actually here. It says that Paul was the one that tried to destroy not just the people, not just the churches, but what does it say? It says the faith. Paul had tried to destroy the faith. See, he had tried at one point in time to destroy the very message that he was now defending to the Galatian churches. The man that had chased down the saints of Christ like a wild man, attempting to kill them, arrest them, beat them, stomp out their faith, was now spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, it was easy for the believers in Judea to praise the Lord for the great work he had done because the radical transformation of such a man brought them to worship, brought them to be emboldened in their faith. It did what it was supposed to do, encourage men and women of faith, and it brought glory to our God. That is what grace can do. That is what grace can do in the lives of his people. You see, Paul is telling his opponents, the churches in Judea recognized and approved of the message that he preached. They glorified God because of it, even though they'd never met Paul face to face. But these Galatian believers, they had met Paul. They had listened to his message and they had believed his message only to turn their backs on God's grace. And that is what legalists do. They turn their backs on grace and attack those who preach it. 
Galatians 1 stands as a warning to the church, reminding us that the very gospel of Jesus Christ is the very truth of God. And each of us, each of us as believers, must stand always willing to defend it. Author and former atheist Lee Strobel, in a recent sermon, he described how the grace of God at one point in his life changed him. Listen to what he said. He said, how can I tell you the difference that God has made in my life? My daughter Allison was five years old when I became a believer of Jesus. And all she had known for those first five years was a dad who was profane, a dad who was angry. And I remember I came home one night and I kicked a hole in the living room wall just out of anger with my life. I am ashamed to think of the times that Allison hid in her room just to get away from me. Five months after I became a Christian, that little girl went to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. That's at age five. And Lee asked this question. He says, what was she saying? She'd never studied the archaeological evidence regarding the truth of the Bible. All she knew was her, that her dad used to be like this. Her dad used to be that way, hard to live with. But more and more, each day, her dad is becoming this way. And if that is what God does to people, then sign her up. And then Lee closed with these words. He said, God changed my family. He changed my world. He changed my eternity. Here is why I'm so passionate about this. And here is why I so desperately want you to understand God's grace. Because every day of my life, I see believers redeemed by the grace of God, but believers not letting the grace of God change them and how they live. And it's painful to watch. I want to see your families healed. That's what I want. I want to see husbands and wives, parents and children serve Jesus Christ together. Let that be your focus. Let God just transform your family. It starts in the family. It doesn't actually start here. It starts in the family and it should start with the husbands and the fathers in the home. Sharing the testimony of the radical transformation that God has done in your life. Paul is much said the same thing when he wrote to Timothy. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might what? Show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul is the pattern for you and me. The patience of Christ, the grace of Christ, the testimony of the work of Christ in Paul's life. It's all a pattern for those who believe. Every believer should have a testimony of the work that God has done. There should be a story there to tell. Because when God transforms a life, there is always a testimony and testimonies are meant to be told, not hidden. God is telling a story through us. None of us just happened along by chance. We were created for a purpose. Paul knew this. You see, the text is actually telling us that God handcrafted you for a purpose. So never be ashamed of the story that God is telling through you. We were created to be a people that God would redeem, a people that would bring glory to our Savior. Christ is looking to be revealed in each of us. God wants our lives to demonstrate the character of Christ. So let his grace work in you. Learn to grow in it so that your life every day becomes a little more of a testimony that reflects his amazing grace. And as Paul would later tell Timothy, 
Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.